A quick note before we begin. This series contains some topics and language that may not be suitable for children. It also contains some attempts at French that may be objectionable to French speakers. My sincere apologies to your beautiful language. Welcome to Everyday Drinking, presented by the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm your host, Jason Wilson. Well, hello, listeners. This is very exciting, our very first podcast. And our very first theme is Endings and Beginnings. Act 1, Confessions of a Wine Critic. Act 2, A Cabernet Franc Tasting Journey with Juicebox Beth. Act 3, How to Make a Martini or An Oral History of the Cocktail Renaissance. So the first thing you should know about me is that I am a recovering wine critic. In fact, I decided to start this podcast, Everyday Drinking, as part of my recovery. I'm a journalist, and I've written about drinks for more than 15 years, authoring three books, traveling the world to taste rare and obscure wines and spirits, telling stories about the people and places where the booze we enjoy comes from. But being a legit wine critic, this was a totally different story. Being the kind of wine critic who sips and spits and scribbles, then passes judgment and bestows a score on a scale of 0 to 100, you know the kind. Well, that was a strange job, and one I'd never imagined I'd end up doing. But then a couple of years later, here I was, sipping and spitting and deciding whether this Cabernet Franc deserved a 91 or a 93 or an 87. So when the pandemic hit, I had actually just returned from the Loire Valley in France. I had spent several weeks in the Loire researching reports for this influential wine publication I was writing for, one whose readers pay up to $200 for a subscription just to see our notes and scores. I met with dozens of winemakers in their cellars and tasted hundreds and hundreds of wines. By the time I got my vaccine just a few weeks ago, I was no longer a wine critic. I'd quit that job. I was now just a regular drinker, grounded, living in the South Jersey suburbs. Yeah, you know, welcome to Juris. <laughs> all right, so with Jersey, I really haven't gone further than, like, all right, when you come over the Ben Franklin, there's the Wegmans and the Chick-fil-A. That's, like, as far you as You haven't I gotten as really far know. as the Whole Foods? Haven't gotten as far as the Whole Foods, no. That's my friend and mentee, Amber Brown. Amber is a dancer and actor, though the auditions have definitely slowed during the pandemic. She's recently charted a new path into wine, studying to become a sommelier. Hi, my name is Amber Janelle Brown. I am a recipient of the Wine Unify Elevate Award. Um, Wine Unify began with several goals, essentially to welcome, elevate, and amplify the voices of non-white underrepresented minorities in the wine industry. Amber's going to be a regular contributor on this podcast. But today, we've just had a breakfast meeting in Philadelphia, and we've decided we need to go wine shopping. This is, so this is Route 70, which is the, the heart of Cherry Hill, New Jersey. <laughs> so, like, we're not in the Loire anymore, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the last time we were driving around in a car together, we were driving trying to find, like, uh, you know, like a, a little dirt road in <laughs> Chinon or something, you know, right? <laughs> yes. The last time I actually saw Amber in person was over a year ago, when she joined me for a few days on my research trip to the Loire, where she shot photos and videos to accompany my report. From sunrise to sunset, we tasted easily up to 100 wines each day as I recorded my notes and judgments in my laptop. So today we are going to 
I mean, I guess what is probably my go-to wine shop in the South Jersey suburbs. Okay, which is? It's called Wine Works. We're gonna we're gonna get there in a minute. Okay. We just. <laughs> are you like well loved there? Like, do they no, know they you? No, they don't know or me at all. I'm you? just an anonymous. Well, no, I'm an I'm an anonymous shopper. I'm just another dude from South Jersey. Come on. Okay, who loves wine? Why not? Yeah. Okay. So we're pulling into the parking lot now, past the Coles, past the Shoprite, past the PetSmart, right? Yes, okay. PetSmart. But here we are, wine, spirits, spirits, beer, and more. As I almost. You know, get an accident in the parking lot. We head into the store. We're here to check out what the Loire wine selection in the suburbs is like these days. And like, can you can you set the scene a little bit? Like, we have. I'm looking at the rosé wine selection, which is kind of cleared out. Honestly, I think they're like prepping for spring, but at the same point, it's kind of it's been cleaned out. These Jersey girls, they want this rosé, honey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think Loire is around here somewhere. I- so here we are in, in France, miscellaneous, I guess is France what they're calling. That's what they're calling mm-hmm. you know, things like Loire. Um, what do we have here? So let's we're finding some. Oh, they have a couple of the ones we visited. They have they have uh, Baudry. Baudry, right? They have Raffaut. Here in this France miscellaneous aisle, as classic rock blares from the speakers, I'm looking at all the little laminated cards next to the bottles for sale, the shelf talkers, and it hits me. Some of these shelf talkers actually have my reviews and scores on them. Amber starts reading them out loud. So we have Olga Raffo, 2014, Le Picasse, a center, fresh and complex, but a more muscular side of Chinon, dark ruby in color, expressive nose full of blackberry, black olive, spice and pepper, on the palate, rich, dark, with more olive and some tobacco on the finish. Amazing value. Did I actually write those words? No, amazing value, like... Now this is wine critic value. What is the for sale right here? It's thirty one ninety nine. It's thirty one ninety nine, which I know sounds, you know, expensive. Is it's that really value? Budget, but like for it's me, it's not value for like a normal person. It's definitely value in the wine bubble. It's it's value in the wine bubble, and if you're gonna like sit on this and store it, I think there is a lot of value to be had. And if you compare it to like Burgundy or Bordeaux pricing, like this is value. So, all right. So apparently, I gave that a ninety four, which I'm now. It's like I'm having an out-of-body experience listening to my own purple wine prose read out loud. But Amber continues. So we have the Bernard Baudry Lincange, spicy and fruity throughout with an expressive nose full of smoked meat and grilled herbs in the mouth. There's solid structure and notes of blackberry along with more savory flavors of black olive and tomato. At mid-palate comes an underlying tobacco note followed by the dry spicy finish. And 92 points. I must have liked that one. I really don't remember that. I love the the dire straits. As she reads these notes and scores from the laminated cards, I really have little to no recollection of writing these. So we decide to buy a couple of the bottles to take back to my office to revisit them. Are you going to try to open another bottle? Listen, you opened it wrong the last time. You would have failed your... (laughs) Your song, but I got it open uh, as opposed to like you know, struggling for days <laughs> like me over I here. Look at you, could you imagine table side? But this is I'd technically like, what, what you're you, supposed what are you to do to the wine. We're back in my office and I'm teasing Amber because she's trying to show me the proper way that a sommelier would open a wine bottle. What's weird is that Amber has worked in restaurants opening wines for years, but as she goes deeper and deeper into her formal wine training. What she knows 
It's constantly questioned. There's always a more proper way to do things. If you open it up here, there's the risk of... Of what? That falling in. Of what falling in? Like of that residual like foil. That's why I've been yelled at multiple times to not open closer to the lip. That has never happened to me. I know. And like I would much prefer to do it the old way that I was doing it. But then I had too many people yell at me and say, Amber, don't. This is a basic problem with learning about wine and spirits. It's impossible to know everything. Yet there's always someone, some expert, telling you that you're doing it all wrong. Imagine trying to watch a baseball game or listen to music or watch a movie or have sex and have all this going on in the same way. It would be ridiculous. And this is what drives people insane about learning about wine and spirits. But oddly, as I went deeper and deeper into this world, I started to realize that everyone, even the most important gatekeepers, who presented themselves as super confident in their judgments and opinions and seemed very knowledgeable, were also seized by doubts. Even the most famous wine critic of all time, Robert Parker, once said, my personal philosophy is, you can be sure of nothing. Okay. Can you grab a gal a nice little glass? Okay, so right now we're drinking a personal favorite, uh, 2017 Le Clos from Bernard Baudry. What score did I give this wine? Okay, so I, I gave it a 93, okay. And I vaguely remember, I mean, this wine is memorable for sure. It's a great wine. Obviously, I gave it a 93, but like, I don't remember the ins and outs in the notes. So why don't you read what I actually wrote? Exactly. So for this wine, you wrote from one of Baudry's top lim limestone sites, aged 12 months in two to five-year-old barrels, then rests for nine months in cement tanks, still young and rambunctious, yet juicy and full of energy, very Pinot-like. It's one of the fruitier Baudry expressions with lots of black and sour cherry, some blackberry and tomato, and light stoniness on the finish. Give this a year or two and it will pay you back by your patience. Right, and that was what was on the shelf talker in the store today. Like, exactly. Um, so what do you think that means anything to anyone shopping? Like, except, except, like, is anybody going to, like, that's what I started to think, like, okay, the score means something, like, what's a 93? Great. Like, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to make a, I'm going to come to the store, I'm going to waste my, not waste, I'm going to spend my $37, which is what this was, uh -huh. right, you know, and, uh, for $37, I better get something good. So the 93 is kind of the mark of quality. Like, I know I'm going to get something decent for my money. But, like, do you think anybody, like, read and internalized those notes? Um, probably not, <laughs> to be <laughs> no, quite exactly. honest. But, I mean, if you look at our, back at our time in the Loire, like, the wines that you truly remember, right, a, like, came from an emotional experience. Absolutely. And and the thing is, and, and these were memorable wines because Baudry was one of the more memorable tastings. It's very hard. And like I said, we've talked about this before. When you're going and like scoring wine, this is such a like high stakes environment. So 
not to say that it takes away, but how much it's kind of like you know when i'm sure like this happens to like gymnasts or like figure skaters when they're like at the olympics do they really remember in this high stakes situation <laughs> okay 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 like, like we're getting carried away here like, like i'm i'm a middle-aged guy with a laptop sitting in front of a winemaker drinking wine like it's hardly like you know simone biles or something you know yeah yeah but i'm saying it's like one of those situations that is like so high stress Right, because they're like they're relying on it. You're relying on it, etc. That how much of it can you really remember? That's what I'm trying to get at. The whole thing with like writing tasting notes, and this is what like is crazy, is that you're doing 400 of them, right? And it's mm-hmm. like it ends up becoming like okay, okay. I'm writing 200 notes on uh, Loire Cabernet Franc, and it's like the jumble of words on the refrigerator and you're just basically taking the same 25 terms and taking half of them and and moving them around and another one you're taking the other half of them you know because there's Mm -hmm. basically like two or three directions with Cab Franc from Loire and like so you're using the same tomato olive berry there's not a whole lot of difference and so it's like the definition of madness and so I don't know this is why I think that the scoring is is flawed because like how can one person do this and I just don't believe it i don't believe in it yeah and i mean honestly to kind of like back you up on that i mean like having come from like you know a professional dancer aspect when i go and do these shows and you're on like a two or three month stint at the theater i mean you're doing roughly probably like 90 120 shows in that period how many of those 90 to 120 shows though it's an amazing job and you're so blessed to have that job yeah yeah and a million people are like wanting to be in your spot how many of these 90 to 120 shows are you going to remember exactly and nobody wants it's like this isn't a wine like nobody wants to hear you know yeah little little cheese with your wine yeah the wine writer like complaining but the whole point is like it's so far removed from honestly like everyday drinking you know it's it's so far removed from what everybody does on a daily basis you know as far as this i mean to to do and so i think i started to get a little you know disconnected from it okay so now i guess we're another glass in but like you know what you were just saying was made me think of you know, it, it never changes. I mean, it doesn't matter what, what level you are. There's always someone who knows more about something because mm-hmm. why not? Like, you know. Exactly. You know, and like, that's like, equal know. parts, like, you know, invigorating that you'll never know everything as well as frustrating. Right. Or it's just like life. As I moved on from being a critic, I knew I wanted to experience tasting in a different way, a more social way, I guess as more of a fan. And as I created this podcast, Everyday Drinking, I knew that I wanted to share the mic with new voices from different corners of the wide world of drinks. So each week, I'll be inviting a rotating cast of people to taste with me, and we'll recommend some great bottles. So my first tasting companion goes by the name of Juicebox Beth. I met Beth through her quirky Instagram account of the same name where she posts colorful primers on organic wine, fruity versus sweet, and what to drink when you're sad. Spoiler, nothing. Don't drink when you're sad. Beth and I drank some wines together on a recent Sunday. 
and here we go. Well, I'm very excited for this. This is the first of my tasting segments with Juicebox Beth. And uh, Juicebox Beth is with me from her, uh, her home in Brooklyn. How are you? Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Jason. Happy to be here. Now, we know Juicebox Beth is not your real name. What is your real name? That's my given name, actually. <laughs> no, uh, I, I wish. Um, so my real name is Beth Commodus. Uh, Commodus like comatose, but without oh, the E. Okay. <laughs> it's how you can picture it and remember me. Um, but I always, I always, I did dream that people would, you know, find me on the street and be like, you're Juicebox Beth? And actually, that has happened one time. One time. Did it? Yeah. During the pandemic. Yeah. I was walking down the street Sunday morning, coming home from the dog park, and I hear, Beth? And I turn around and I was like, I don't know who this girl is. Like, oh. I don't, you know, I got nervous. And so then she was like, Are you Juice Box Beth? And I'm like, How do you know? <laughs> she recognized my ponytail. Like, I have, a, I often have a ponytail on the top of my head. So I, head. that was like dreams made called by Juice Box Beth outside of my own home. Do we call you an influencer? Is that what you are? No, please, no. no. Okay, no, of course not. <laughs> so what, 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 like, so what, why, why Juice Box Beth? What's the name? Why Juice Box Beth? Well, I just like wines that you can drink that are juicy and fruity and fun and kind of just taking like the, um, all of like the pretension and, uh, away from wine. So it's just meant to be, meant to be for fun. Uh, I started it maybe two and a half years ago, literally just so I could take pictures and write like a little caption about a wine so I can remember the wines that I was drinking. And it's kind of turned into like this, like quirky educational, um, Honestly, I meet most of my friends over Instagram nowadays. Uh, so <laughs> we all it's do, become right? just, yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Where, where else do you meet people nowadays? I don't, I don't know. But All right. And, uh, and, and you're studying for one of these fancy wine certifications, right? Yes. So I have found myself uh, studying for the WSET diploma. So that's the final level of the Wine and Spirits Education Trust program. Um, I'm just a natural wine girl in a classic wine world, <laughs> trying to <laughs> just trying to find her place. But that's quite a journey. I mean, wh when did you kind of start down this the wine path? Yeah, so I come from the tech world. Um, like I studied math, and I just loved wine on the side. And uh, I used to live in Madison, Wisconsin, so I had a great shop out there, Square Wine Company, and Andrea just taught me like a lot about wine, and I kind of realized that oh this would be fun. Um, and then I enrolled in level two. So I skipped level one um, at the advice of some random guy who told me not to do level one. Um, and so I started at level two and Thanks, I, just, guy. I just, I just couldn't stop. I mean, Hey, it worked out because I didn't think level two was, um, was crazy, but it, I just couldn't stop. Like, I just can't, there's just so much to learn. And I kind of learned wine in reverse because I started with like these natural, random wines and I was like wow these are so alive and interesting and then I realized that there's so much history and there's just so much to learn so I'm kind of doing it in reverse but it must be uh kind of interesting to be doing this during a pandemic I mean you're doing I mean do, are, are is it all home study I mean are there group tastings I mean what's what's happening yeah, so the first class was um, was supposed to start in April 2020, and that kept 
being postponed and postponed. And the school that I go to, they at first didn't want to do any remote tastings. Like they just didn't have the infrastructure to bottle and send us those the wine samples. So it just kept getting pushed out and pushed out. And then finally, um, they figured that out. So we were doing a remote at home tastings. We'd have to go to Manhattan to pick up the samples. Um, and, but now we're back in, we're back in the, the classroom, all masked and socially distant. Um, but we're, now what we about the to- spitting? What about, uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was my first class back last week and, um, they wouldn't let us dump the, the spit in their sink (laughs) they required us to bring it home with us and so i brought a coffee mug and i underestimated how much spit would be generated (laughs) (laughs) and i was just i was getting real close to the top and i was like oh god and so then i had to ride home on the subway and with my spit in my backpack uh and i was just so paranoid that it was gonna spill and anyway yeah i got i finally got home and i went my boyfriend said, hello, how was it? And I went straight to the the sink and just dumped it out. It's like, I got to get rid of this. Um, so, uh, there you go. yeah, it's pandemic times. You do what you yeah. got to do. do what you it's got. fine. <laughs> it's Carrying fine. Spit on the, yeah, all right. I mean, you didn't think about like dumping it in the street or anything like it, it was a lot like it would have been it would have looked weird. And I always, I don't know. I just I was like, I need to, this is mine. I need to take care of this. Funny. Like you just I was like sitting on the pack subway it in thinking, and pack like, it out. Yeah. Like what do yeah. What do other people have in their backpacks right now? Probably weirder shit than that. Like so <laughs> it's like I'm not alone here. All right. So what are we tasting today? So we are tasting some Loire Valley Cabernet Franc. Fantastic. My favorite. Can I tell you something personal? My middle name is Frank. It's Franck. <laughs> that's my dad's name too. So <laughs> Is that why you're drawn to it? I guess I maybe. It's, you know, like, you know, yeah. What does that say about me? I don't know. Well, my middle name is Cabernet, so... it's it's not actually you should pronounce it frank my dad like my dad kind of like his friends call him frank sometimes just because (laughs) he's a wine guy frank wilson i like that that's now i'm jealous my middle name is ann so you have a chinon i think is the first one we have right is that's what i have in my glass i think Yeah. yeah and what is this one We'll see. Great sound effects. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So this is um, Chinon from Beatrice and Pascal Lambert from um, Chinon. So it's called Les Terrasses. Okay. Um, It's a uh, 2019. Yep. Yeah, 2019. Um, This is a pretty good value um, to me. It smells very like spicy. So you just said food pairings. I want to drink this with a pepperoni pizza, like maybe even with some peppers on it. Pe- I just think that that long would, hots, as we that say, would make me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, I think this is why when I'm trying to turn like friends and family onto like, you know, I don't know, to get out of sort of the fruit bomb, you know, typical wines, I always serve them a chinon or some kind of loire cab franc because it's it's like it's savory people can understand this this isn't going to be like a super fruity wine 
it's spicy, it's pepper, all that stuff, right? I mean, that's the thing. And this is what, how much is this wine? This is like $22. Okay. So, so maybe like from a good pizza place, right? <laughs> I mean, I live in Brooklyn. Like we, we, yeah. we only have good pizza. We only have good pizza. Well, that's a lie. But what do you think of this? I, I like it. I mean, I think it's a it's probably a pretty good value too at twenty two. I mean, this is it ticks all the boxes for you know, and it's got sort of the it's not too much, but it's got some of the green spicy notes. It's got some of that like you know telltale pencil shaving uh, sort of quality in the mouth. You know that that kind of that's what I always think of with the, with the Chinon is like there's this kind of pencil shaving graphite yeah. whatever you want to call it. And I think, you know, but, but it is like fresh and fruity too. I, I, I mean, I think get like really fresh, fresh berries, cherries kind of, it's like, a, you know, it's really, yeah, it's a really lively, cool wine. I totally agree. All right. Second one. Um, so this is Moss, um, Cabernet Franc Vin de France. So it's labeled Vin de France as opposed to a specific appellation, um, within yeah, okay. the Loire, which we should so talk it's, about. It's not, yeah, it's so it's, I think they're in Anjou, right? I mean, is that mm. where, yeah. But right. obviously this happens a lot in, I think in Loire is, is that, I mean, Loire is like, like let's put it out there, is, is really like one of the big centers of natural wine making. I mean, it's really kind of one of the pioneering regions and certainly Anjou is too, but a lot of the producers, choose not to bottle in the Appalachian so they can do what they want to because for years, I think like the kind of that classic French Appalachian system, you know, they, they weren't very friendly to these kind of new, you know, people that were doing things with biodynamics and natural winemaking and stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, so anyway, there, that's a, it's just because it's like Vendée de France or table wine or whatever, you know, it's like, it's still excellent wine and it's, it's kind of a thing now. It's like a badge of honor almost to, to not be in the Appalachian. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, I mean, there are still some Vin de France that is like, not, it's not good. Well, of course. <laughs> but then like, there's a lot this of other... it's terrible. Yeah. An <laughs> yeah, ocean but... of it. That's not good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. Um, this is, Ooh, Ooh. this is interesting. We've gone up a, a notch here, I think. Yeah. Um, see mm, so this i get more um it's definitely fruit forward but it's floral and like elegant thinking pretty purple flowers on the nose yes yeah really yeah, the prettiest <laughs> and also mm. i mean this is pretty high alcohol i think for what you what loire was traditionally which was usually around like 12.5 under yeah. 13 for sure i mean this is like moving in at 14% like it's it's like and I, 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 I obviously the flavors are popping accordingly right yeah I mean and I would not expect that at all I think it's so well integrated with all yeah. of the fruit all of the acid like everything is it's just such like a nice medley it's also so smooth going down like I really like this yeah well yeah not I and that, I think that's why you, in the Laura Valley in particular like they've been doing this, they've been doing natural wine. It's not new for them. Um, right. 
they've been making natural wine. So it's not like a fad or anything like that, which is right. like me. I just sound like I'm back in my W set classes right now. Like it's not natural. Like funky does not equal natural. <laughs> I'm trying to get out there on juice box bet that natural wine does not have to be like that. Like the other day I was listening to a podcast and they made a diss about someone and it was like, he probably drinks natural wine in like Brooklyn or something like that. And then the podcast host was like, wow, natural, natural wine is such a great diss somehow. And I'm like, why? Like, it's yeah, delicious. Yeah. Like what, what is there? Like what's wrong with it? So, and I think the, you know, the label and the, you know, the zero zero culture has made it snobby which is like the exact opposite of what it was supposed to be you oh 100 yeah i always love there was always this sort of statement that was made at tastings and stuff that i would go to where people would be like well you know it's not what you'd find in some it's not what they would pour in some hipster wine bar in brooklyn you know that would be like something like that and i and, and after you would hear this all the time and i would start to think like where is this wine bar i would like to go to this I, wine bar. i know right <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, so yeah. let's move on to now the third wine I think is a little different. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. That We're was like good like sound effects. Kids with a new toy. Like we just got our microphones the other day. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh wow. All right, so what's this wine? Oh, did I? You're gonna make me butcher the French? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's exactly why I asked you. Right. So this is a producer right. in Bourget. Okay. This is in. That's uh, the appellation is Bourget, and it's uh, Catherine and Pierre Breton. Um, very cool biodynamic producer, and this is their 2015 Nuit de which would be the night of drunkenness. Uh, but this one, okay, so we have a little bit of age here. It's 2015. This is the uh, the other mm. two I don't think had a lot of oak aging. This has 18 months in oak. Uh, so mm. it's it's a little bit of a bigger wine. And 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 the 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 wines from the Cab Franc from Bourget is like is definitely bigger in general, usually. It's a more kind of powerful wine. Mm. Why is that? Uh, a lot of scientific reasons. Would you like to talk about soil at this point? <laughs> Pass. Like, can you please, when you become a psalm, can you please not be the one that comes over to the table and tells me about schist? <laughs> yeah, I won't be that person. Okay, thank you. Because no I, one wants I to won't. hear it. You hear it here first. I'm promising not to be that person. Okay. So what are you what are you getting on this? Let's hear. Let's 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 see how the education's going. Oh God. <laughs> I get like darker fruits here. As opposed to the, the first two were more red fruited, I get more like blackberries. Yeah, definitely. And I mean it's it's darker in color. It's it's much more I think there's much more structure. It's much bigger. Yeah muscular it's pretty it's very well integrated though like yeah for sure i mean this one i think also it's 2015 i mean you could you could put this mm -hmm. away for you could put this in a cellar for 10 years more 15 i mean yeah 
and this is, I think, what, what did we say this one was? It's like 20, 29, 20, 28, 29. 29. 29. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, here's where I think like the value is, right? In a wine like this that you can buy for $30 as compared to somewhere, you know, in Burgundy, Bordeaux, whatever. And it's like mm-hmm. half the price, third of the price. Yeah. It's so good. Exactly. And it's natural. Yeah. I, I know. I know. Um, In fact, exactly. when I went to I went to visit when I was like writing, you know, this report on Loire Valley wines and stuff. I went to this winery and I tasted with Catherine, and she, the, she was like very stressed out because, the, according to her, the day like on the biodynamic calendar, this wasn't a good day for tasting. So she was very concerned we would be tasting the wines on. It was like you know a very bad tasting day on the biodynamic calendar. Uh, and That's how did they taste? They tasted great. I mean, they, you know, I mean, I mean, <laughs> it's like, but you I don't, don't know, you know how it could have I don't believe, but true, exactly. Well, you know, do I remember if it was as good today? I, I mean, it seems very good today. Maybe it pairs well with a podcast. Um, let me check what day it is. Is today good for wine? No, it's it's a leaf day. What does that mean? On the biodynamic calendar. So there can be, you know, there are days that wine is quite good for drinking and that's like uh-huh. a fruit day or a flower day. Uh, um, but okay. then there are, and there are days that are bad. And so that's leaf and fruit, I believe. So today is a leaf day, but it tastes great, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I don't know. What does that say about the biodynamic calendar? I don't know. Well, Maybe if we taste it on a fruit or a flower day, it would be even better. Who knows? Yes. We'll never know. Yes. Because this wine's going to well, be gone well, tonight. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Like, can I, can I, how long can this last? And the thing with all of these is that the acidity is just so good on all of these that they're just like, these are so good. I love Cap Frog. <sighs> just let's like just when the, like, let's, lo- let's love Cap Frog for a minute. Let's just- let's yeah let's have a moment a moment for cab franc i just like i just think it's so so overlooked you know even you know everyone wants their pinot noir their ma now but cab franc is where it's at why do you think more people don't drink cab franc i mean like you know the everyday consumer i mean obviously people who know wine drink it you know but like why do you think like people that you know that maybe aren't so up in the wine bubble i don't think they even know what it is um i think they hear cabernet sauvignon they know that they like those or they know that they like pinot noir but yeah uh why do you think it's not you know as i think for me i think it's well i think it's because it's a savory wine and people like fruity wines and that's just kind of how it goes i mean i think that Right. People are going to veer. It's going to be a smaller group of people that veer towards wines that have that green element that we were, you know, we've been kind of talking about. Yeah. Personally, I like that. No, sometimes I think it gives it kind of character. Like the first one literally smells like a pepperoni pizza with peppers <laughs> on it. And I love that about it. Like, it's just so unique. Um, so no, and I think that's at the lower end. I mean, that's what I always tell people, like, look, you know, 
I mean, obviously wines have to have fruit, but remember tomato is a fruit. Olive is a fruit, right? Like sometimes mm -hmm. that's what the Cab Loire Cab Franc, the notes are. Yeah, that's fair. At least I that's, my, that's my pitch. I, nobody ever, nobody ever goes for it, but yeah, that's my pitch. Anyway. I want to, sh I want to, sh I think these wines are just so likable. Like I think that people would like these if they tried these. This has been delightful. <laughs> delightful wine chat with Juicebox Beth. And uh, we're going to see you uh, again in, in a week or two. And we're going to be talking about, I think, umlaut spring wine, something like that. Can't wait. All right. It's well, be good. thanks for joining me. See you next time. Thanks, Jason, Frank, Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> Look for more on Cabernet Franc, including bottle recommendations, in this week's issue of our newsletter, which you can find at everydaydrinking.com. So for our first cocktail segment of Everyday Drinking, I figure we should do the martini. There's of course nothing more iconic than the martini, but like all great art forms, it's a pretty simple formula, gin, vermouth, bitters, with endless variations. We now live in an era of sophisticated, advanced, maybe a little too advanced bartending. People now kinda know what a real martini is. But it might be hard to imagine that wasn't the case about a decade ago. In fact, in the mid to late 2000s, the aughts, the word martini had basically lost its meaning in the culture. At that time, in the era of sex in the city, basically anything served in a V-shaped glass was called a teeny, that teeny suffix. Apple teeny, coffee teeny, chocolate teeny. Vodka had replaced gin. This was the state of the martini when I first started writing about cocktails for the Washington Post during that same era. Recently, I went to Washington, D.C. to a bar called the Columbia Room to mix some martinis with Derek Brown, a guy who was once declared to make the best martini in America. Derek and I met during that strange era of the aughts, the cocktail renaissance, with all its pre-prohibition speakeasy role-playing when bartending was becoming what it is today. Derek Brown is a true spirits and cocktail expert, consultant, entrepreneur, owner of many beloved spots, including such odd concepts as an all sherry bar or a Game of Thrones pop-up, one that was covered by media as far away as China and Russia. He's been nominated for James Beard Awards, been named Bartender of the Year by Imbibe Magazine, but his reach goes far beyond the bar. He's the chief spirits advisor to the National Archives and a distinguished fellow at Catholic University. He's written for The Atlantic, Vox, The Washington Post. His book, Spirits, Sugar, Water, Bitters, How the Cocktail Conquered the World, was published in 2019 and became an instant classic. His next book, Mindful Mixology, A Guide to No and Low Alcohol Cocktails, will be out in early 2022 and chronicles his own journey into what he calls mindful drinking. Derek and I made some martinis, yes, but we ended up talking about much more than just cocktails. So the first martini I'm going to make is with Plymouth, Dole and Dry. Uh, we do an orange bitters blend at the Columbia Room and then a lemon peel on top. It's 50-50. This to me is like the quintessential martini. This is the one that um, in 2011... I think it was GQ uh, said was the best martini in the United States. So the gin, whoops, I just put a ton. You can tell I haven't done this for a while. I just over poured. I don't want to over serve. 
Please don't overserve over me today. Um, I keep the, the gin in the freezer because um, it obviously doesn't freeze and it tastes really good that way. Uh, nice and crisp and cold. That's what I expect out of a martini. I want it to be like, I want you to shiver when you drink it. It's that cold. All right, so we're going to put the vermouth in, which is in the refrigerator. Fresh vermouth, that's important. I think people, most drinking people or people who are in craft cocktails heard that, but if you haven't heard that before, please, vermouth should be kept in the refrigerator and only really last for a week for ideal tasting. And, and a couple weeks, it starts to change. It's still not bad, but um, the aromatics start to die down. All right. I think it's one of the first lessons of cocktails, really, is change of vermouth. Keep in the fridge, change of vermouth. Understand that it's wine. It's cheap. You can, you can, you can buy new one every two weeks. You, you can do it. Yeah, I do sympathize for people um, if they're making, like, one martini in a month. And that's just, like, one bottle for that. But, all right, I'm doing the dash of the bitters. Um, and now I'm going to add ice to it. Now, I will say that my grandmother loved martinis, and she had the same bottle of Cinzano for, like, 15 years in the bar. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes bad, right? But it's not bad. It's not like it's rancid or it's going to kill you. So feel free to continue to drink your vermouth as long as you can stomach it, you know? I don't. It's just technically, it's not as perfect as it once was. Well, I think her generation didn't really use too much vermouth to begin with. Definitely, you know, the martini has evolved and changed over time. And, you know, what our parents and what their parents thought of as a martini are different things. And it was a different thing back in the 19th century. It was a different thing when James Bond drank it. It was a different thing when, you know, the Rat Pack drank it. And that's, like, one of the amazing things about the dry martinis. It's always been cool. You know, it's always kind of been a great drink, um, but it certainly has evolved and changed. Are you saying that every generation has its own martini? Yeah, in a way, I guess I am. Uh, my, my generation had the, uh, unfortunately, had the dirty martini. So. All right. I'm gonna just, now I'm going to just take the lemon peel and the outside or the exocarp, if we want to be technical, I'm going to spray it on the top and discard. So that's my super classic crisp cocktail, AKA the 50-50, right? Um, I didn't invent it by any stretch of imagination. I'm just saying that's the way I make it. All right. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. That's awesome, right? Yeah. All right, now I'm gonna make GQ one. was right. <laughs> I'm gonna make one with Tangler 810. All right, so I'm here in the Columbia Room with uh, a good friend of mine, Derek Brown. And uh, although I have to say, we have in the beginning we we had a little bit of a conflict when we first started. Uh, I don't know, knowing each other. I think you were starting. You were at Comey still, probably still a little bit in the wine world at that time. And I was had just started writing a cocktail column for the Washington Post, and there was a little kind of speakeasy drama. Should I go into detail here? Yes, please. All right. So basically, um, me and two other bartenders, uh, we were really getting deep into this renaissance, if you will, the revolution. And 
we decided that on our own time and our own dime, we were going to set up a speakeasy, you know, because in DC at the time, you had many great bartenders and many great cocktails, but there had yet to be a speakeasy style place that had the gravitas or even the intent of like milk and honey and PDT, please don't tell. So, so we wanted to do that. So we're, we're talking, we're, we're deep in the spe- speakeasy era. That was really the first uh, part of this cocktail renaissance, the, what eventually became known as, what, the, the speak cheesy. That's right. I, th- I, think, I think you, I give you, in my book, I give you credit with inventing it. <laughs> speak cheesy. Um, but, you know, we were, it was a different time. But, so we were pretty serious about what we were doing. Um, we started this place called Hummingbird to Mars. That was named after a quote by a senator who, during Prohibition, had said, you know, it's more likely that a hummingbird will fly to the moon with the Washington Monument strapped to its tail than they're going to repeal Prohibition. Obviously, I think his name was like Senator Morris or something. <laughs> Obviously, that was total bullshit. And, um, but, but we love that Hummingbird to Mars moniker and so we set it up we had a lot of rules around it rules were very important to speakeasies and um you know and we were very serious and what was good about that is that there was an there was we basically lost in many ways the art of bartending you know like so so i want to start by saying a positive note like it was good for oh, people yes, yeah, yeah absolutely however <laughs> It, you know, no, the place was great. I mean, let's be clear. The place was great. The place was great, and and the the drinks were great. And it was before its time, and uh, everybody was just living in the moment right there. I mean, it was like cocktails were the thing, and that was just. It's hard to even imagine right now, and also it's hard to imagine how much like that pr- prohibition era role playing was a big part of it, right? Like, oh, we're gonna. December 5th is repeal day and, you know, the whole thing. And that was all like part of the, the era for sure. We were essentially, um, you know, inspired by that. Now, it's funny because if we were to go back in time with our prohibition gear, uh, we would have looked ridiculous to compare to, you know, so so it was it is accurate to say role player, you know. What, what is it when they call it a multi-action role player game or something? You know, there's a LARPing. Live action right. role playing, right. yeah. Okay, so we were I mean, There wasn't much difference b- 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 between you guys and say like uh, you know Civil War reenactors. You know, <laughs> in some ways, yeah. In some ways, yeah. That's right. But you know, it, we're not bringing back the Civil War. We're bringing back good cocktails. So, <laughs> right, yeah. so, so that's good. Um, and, and so, it was. You know, one of our rules was you can't write about Hummingbird to Mars. Now, why did we set up a photo either? Right. Come right. On, tell us all the rules. No photos, no writing about it. Uh, and I don't remember any of the other ones, but those were the ones that were <laughs> the most controversial. And, and well, there, had to, there was something about like you couldn't there was no pickup line. There was no you couldn't walk around and pick up women. You couldn't. It was like you couldn't. You had to sit in your seat. You had to basically you're at church. Yeah, that's exactly right. You had to worship the cocktail. Um, but this, you know, like the whole rule thing came from Milk and Honey, and, and there were some good ideas behind it. Like bars had come to represent one thing, you know, and in order to kind of like take a step back and say, no, this is a culinary experience. This is a craft oriented experience. 
it was useful to set some rules around it. Now, were those rules occasionally ridiculous? Yes. Did they kind of like maybe overstep their intentions? Yes. Um, were we sometimes overstepping our intentions? Yes. All of that, yes. But at the same time, there were some positive outcomes. And, you know, the way I like to say it is like, you know, we were sort of like these soldiers for this new movement, right? That new movement being, you know, the cocktail revolution. And in order to be those soldiers, we had to be convinced of the truth of this cause, you know, and that cause was more important than anything else. And, and I'm not saying everybody. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'll let other people off the hook and I'll be like, I was that asshole. <laughs> so you're like the Che Guevara of, of, of cocktails, you know, right? The ends justify the means. So if you had to kill off vodka, so be it. If you had to kill off the, the apple teeny, fuck it. You know, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The casualties, you know, being like the chocolate martini, which is actually kind of delicious. Um, but yeah, and you know, was Che Guevara really fun to hang out with? <laughs> Probably not. I don't think so, but I mean, I, I think ultimately, you know, we fun wasn't the intention. Um, and, and I remember actually one of the guys I worked for at some point being like, you know, cocktails are supposed to be fun, Derek. And I, and you know, I had to be reminded of that, but, but there was another kind of fun. And that was like, you know, having this mythical enemy or hypothetical enemy which was, you know, vodka and flavorless drinks and, you know, the kind of bros that ordered vodka sodas. Um, and, and, and we wanted to be champions for complexity. You know, we wanted to show that like drinks can be complex and interesting. And so I don't regret that at all, but uh, yeah, but all the other things apply. Well, so then let's get to the drama then. So then, yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a circuitous route of telling the story. But, so he, along comes Jason Wilson, you know, uh, intrepid reporter for the Washington Post. Scoops McGee. <laughs> Scoops McGee. Gar you know, and, and I actually don't remember if you wrote about it or you took a picture or both. I think you wrote about it. I wrote about it. And then we were, and, and you but kind in, of... In a, in a circuitous way, like in a cheeky way. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and it was taking the piss, as the British say, and it was funny, but not, it was not funny to me. No, it wasn't you know, funny. It was yeah. not funny to me. Um, <laughs> heads were going to roll after this. And so, yeah, that was our initial, uh, the big the beginning of our um, frenemies. Yes. You know, frenemies. Look and at us now. Yeah, look, look at, at us now. <laughs> now. Now we can enjoy a martini together um, and nobody gets hurt. And, I, you know, it was funny. The other day I, I looked up some of, see if the, some of the drama still existed online. And the Washingtonian, I remember, had written a story saying they blamed me for Hummingbird DeMars disappearing. They said well, it was because of Jason Wilson. And my editor demanded a correction because that actually wasn't the case and to this day there's a correction to the story that they that was not actually the reason that it had closed <laughs> so yes. okay so 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 one thing that's always interested me about your background is that you you did you were a psalm you'd have some you know the significant wine experience uh, i mean comey was a pretty you know very high-end restaurant that with a great wine list so you know and but you chose the path of the bartender so what, like what, why? So, you know, I was looking to like, I guess, gain some respectability because I, I don't think most people saw bartending as a profession. 
And so people would constantly ask me what I really do. And so that would be like, are you in a band? Are you an actor? <laughs> are you in school? And I'd be like, no, I really am pouring you a drink and this, I'm really a bartender. That's what my job is. So, so there's more certifications now, like the beverage alcohol resource program, bar and stuff like that. But back then, I, you know, bartending schools were a joke. Um, and maybe some of them still are, but if you went to bartending school, you were just learning how to mix colored liquids. There was no actual alcohol in them. And they were teaching you outmoded, outdated recipes. So um, I studied to become a sommelier. And I started with a quartermaster sommeliers, which is obviously um, in um, ill repute. I don't know, don't get me started on those stories. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that like that felt like it was giving me some respectability. In 2007, uh, when I was at Comey, um, I got wine and spirits, like, I guess, I forget what it was called, best new sommeliers or oh, rising guy. sommeliers. But you could have seen the writing on the wall because all of the other sommeliers, when they were asked about like their you know, top drink or whatever, they were like burgundy. And you could see him swirling the glass and <laughs> through the fucking article. And, you know, and, and there I was like, Sherry, it's cheap. You know, like, so, so I think, and they had like these kind of like, you know, big knotted ties. I wasn't even wearing a tie. So I think I, I just, my personality lent better to a bartender. I did try to be serious as a bartender too. I wore bow ties, man. I remember. I wore bow ties. I was trying to think that, I was trying to think about the last time I was, in the Columbia room, and I think I, 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 you wanted to give me my drinks, and I wouldn't accept it, so I, I bought your bow tie. Oh yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Which uh, I still wear, by the way. Sweet. <laughs> so one of us does. So, moving on from there. So, you, I mean, you've had you've had many many acts, and the many acts since then, and 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 before and after. So maybe take us through a little bit of like where it started and you know where it's gone and where you are now within you know yeah i mean i was i i say this word a lot when i refer to my past but it is really true is i was basically a shiftless loser like i didn't know what i was going to do with my life and so when i kind of got behind a bar there was you know it, it i saw an opportunity you know, to, to do something creative and fun and um, social and all these things that seemed like cool. But but if I was really to be honest, and you know, that's kind of the story I tell, and it is part of the story, but there's a layer below that. And there was um, this guy named Wayne that was a bartender there. And people always used to come in and be like, is Wayne here? And I was like, no, or yeah, he's over there. But he was so popular. And I thought like, I kind of want to be that guy. Like, cause he's making money and people respect him. Like that's, that's dope. And so, um, I wanted to be Wayne, I guess. Uh, and, um, little did I know that he's probably just giving away the house. That's probably why people love coming in and asking for him. Like now if somebody comes in and asks for a bartender, I'm like, okay, they gave you free drinks. You know, no, no. I, I mean, obviously people do like specific bartenders, but it's part of it. And, and so, yeah, but, but so I went, you know, so I went down that path and I was really excited about learning. I really like absorbing things and getting deep into um, an area of knowledge, you know? And so I learned as much as I could about it. And I, and I did have this kind of like feeling like, oh my God, I could be 
the best bartender in the world if I wanted to be. Um, but mostly, I say I say that because I didn't know that anybody was really a top bartender at that time. I just didn't have the knowledge. I didn't know Dale DeGroff existed or what have you. That came on later and um, helped to course correct and helped me to be a better bartender. But um, but at first I thought I was inventing a new world in some ways. And I, I, I hope every bartender felt that when they started and they discovered classic cocktails or using fresh juice, which is now commonplace, but was revolutionary then. I mean, I hope they've got that level of excitement. I got, I got fucking excited about it. And, yeah. and think about, think about the things that were quote unquote revolutionary back then that now seem old hat, you know, like yeah, fresh juice. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what are some of those things like? Yeah. Well, yeah, and there. I and mean, we're talking. It's not that long ago. I mean, this is 2006, 2007, 2008. I mean, you know, this is yeah. Yeah, there. I mean, there were simple things that we did change it, and 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 they, you know, following a recipe that was like a classic recipe instead of like the one the older bartender showed you that this is the way people like it. You know, there's this guy. I'm I'm just gonna call out a bunch of people in the past uh, who who said dickhead dumb things, and this guy named Gee was one of them. He worked with Plena, and um, I was you know trying out my um, classic car bartending there, and I made a Manhattan with bitters, right? And Gee was like, no, they people don't like that, and I was like, no. Um, that's how it's classic. And he's like, nope, absolutely not. So dickheaded me goes and grabs a stack of books that I'd been researching. <laughs> and I was like, here you go. You know, like, here's the books. And <laughs> he was a, like an older French guy. He's not taking that shit. But I started just making Manhattans with bitters on the slide. So what, what's happened to Guy? Uh, yeah, I mean... He either the, owns a restaurant. The mists of time. Or, yeah, <laughs> I'd like. I I I don't want to run into Guy. He was fine. He's a good guy. No, I mean, no, no, just, no, no. He yeah, was yeah. following his training, right? I mean, like, yeah. He just people would be like, I don't want bitters, and he like, sure. So so he wasn't really that bad, but but yeah, adding bitters, revolutionary. Would anybody <laughs> now like? Could could you imagine if I came to you as like, I want you to write an article on me. I added bitters to a drink. Right. You would la- you'd laugh that, at me. That was yeah. a whole article at one time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Derek Brown. Here's a trick. Uh, add bitters to your drink. <laughs> oh, funny aside is um, I made my own orange bitters because this is before Reagan's bitters existed. And I, I heard orange bitters were in a martini, so I made my own bitters. And this server I worked with, her name was Glenda. Um, I was a bar manager at the time. She had some sour oranges, like she had a little tree in her house or something like that. Um, and she brought me the peels and I made orange bitters out of them. And that was an article. That was a whole article about that. So really, but what was funny about it too is I look back at that recipe, Jason, and it, like, it would kill a horse. Like the amount of alcohol in it, because I didn't know yet how to properly, you know, do recipes. I knew how to make bitters, I guess, but I, I think it was like probably like, four ounces of gin and two ounces of vermouth. It was like an ungodly amount of alcohol and then my own homemade bitters. I think that was something then. Everybody felt like they had to make everything themselves, right? I mean, that was, and, and often you did because it didn't exist commercially, right? But I mean, now you can get anything. But I remember like Dave Wandrich had a recipe on how to like approximate Geneva because they didn't have it. You know, it was like mixed whiskey and gin. 
and here you go, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, we're making everything. Yeah, we improvised. Um, and in that sense, we transcended form. You know, like we went beyond what bartending was and could be at the time. So it was cool. I mean, we that's why it still remains, I think, an interesting topic. But um, I think we've settled into our skin a little bit more and we know there's not really a war. I was interviewed recently about vodka and I said, uh, well, guess what? We lost. You know, like if, if it was a war, we fucking lost. So... <laughs> So that's just the reality of it. So um, you tell me we're going to have a vodka martini today? <laughs> so today it's all about <laughs> vodka martinis and dirty martinis. I still hate the dirty martini, but, um, but I keep it to myself most of the time. You're kind of going with some classic ones here, the Tanqueray 10, the Plymouth Gin. I mean, is that where you want to be with the martini? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's really great gins out there, and some of them I just haven't tried or I, d I haven't used in a martini, really. At this point, I'm very happy with the recipe I have, so I don't experiment outside of it too often. However, I also think these are perfect, so there's not a lot of need to change that. This is a question of making it more perfect, I guess. And stirring is very important, right? I mean, that's dilution is part of the cocktail. I think a lot of people don't understand that either. Yeah, I mean, dilution equals chilling as well. So that, you know, and stirring is a little bit more artful than shaking in the sense that, like, by shaking it, um, it's this violent action, 15 seconds, it's all done. You know, um, with stirring, it's a little bit more of a craft, um, you know. So... I mean, the house martini here is more of a 50-50, but there's obviously many, many other ratios, and people quibble over these, like, you know, 4 to 1, 5 to 1, 8 to 1. You know, I used to be a sort of a 4 to 1 guy, you know, four parts gin to one part vermouth. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's just the pandemic, but I started to become more of a 5 to 1 person lately. You know? <laughs> My grandmother was probably like a 97 to 1, you know, like, but so, I mean, what, what, like, do people must come in and request in different ways? And I mean, why did you stumble upon this rather than some of these other more classic ratios? Yeah, this was endless experimentation. You know, like, in, in, I don't do this as much anymore, but um, I still do it to some degree. But I try to experiment wi uh, widely in, in trying to discover what's the best way to make something, you know. Um, and everything goes through a lot of different iterations before it becomes on the menu. Um, become something on the menu and so with this one we just went through all these different trials and this is what I ended up with as the best one um, mm -hmm. and, and best one for me let's be honest you know this is a point of view I have a point of view yeah. with the martini but people can augment it and change it all they want a lot of times I feel like those um, the way that they approach the vermouth is not based on their own tastes or science <laughs> It's based on these alcoholic writers who were trying to leave out the least alcoholic part of the, yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> you know, like, I, as, as much as Hemingway was a, you know, a wonderful writer and somebody who, who you know, eloquently described cocktails um, or succinctly and it made it ele uh, elegant, um, I would say that he also was a drunk. And um, frankly, like, I don't see why leaving the vermouth out. 
Like it's so good. So five to one, four to one, three to one. That's great. And maybe maybe this is one of the reasons why the martini is eternal because it it's just it's simply a, a structure. It's almost like a poetic structure, right? Yeah, I used to. If we get abstract or get no, kind of a, more of the philosophical yeah. aspect yes. of it, I used to teach this class called creativity through subtraction. And what I was trying to teach people is that the martini is perfect because of what it doesn't add, right? It, it's you know it's it's. Maybe maybe it's getting a little zen, but it's like just like it's not the spokes that are important about a wheel; it's the space between them, right? So in some ways, it is the 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 lack what it lacks that makes it so good, you know, and that that constraint um, forces it to be better. Check out our newsletter at everydaydrinking.com for more on martinis, more martini recipes and especially more of my conversation with Derek Brown, in which he discusses his own journey into mindful drinking, whether or not sherry will ever happen, and why the term mocktail sucks. Everyday Drinking is presented by the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network, produced by Jason Wilson and co-produced and edited by Miles O'Brien. Additional contributions from Amber Janelle Brown and Beth Kamadas. Special thanks to Derek Brown and the Columbia Room in Washington, D.C. Check out our newsletter at everydaydrinking.com. Talk to you next week. Cheers.